online, on smart speakers and on Listen Again. This is Food FM. Welcome to Flavor Talks with Bella Zoo. I'm Robert Kirbishley. Bella Zoo's new podcast, Flavor Talks, is all about extraordinary and uncompromised flavor. We'll be chatting to our long-standing suppliers, creative chef customers, inspiring influencers, and some of the UK's leading food experts to share adventures and stories behind our favorite ingredients, giving you an insight into our world of food. In the hot seat this week, we have Genevieve Taylor, live fire expert, founder of the Bristol Fire School and renowned food writer, and Chris Chops Taylor, no relation, co-founder of Whittle and Flame, the sustainable charcoal maker. We're hopefully changing perceptions of when we can and can't cook al fresco. We're learning about distilling charcoal and the latest must-have cookbooks. Hello, welcome to Flavor Talks with Bella Zoo, and uh, I'm really genuinely delighted today. Uh, we're going to be talking to Genevieve Taylor, live fire and barbecue expert, founder and owner of Bristol Fire School, and published author of, uh, I think we got 11 books there, Genevieve. I think that's right, isn't it? Number 12 is coming out um, in about three and a half weeks. Yeah, I, th- I think this. I think that people should be listening to this the day before it comes out. And four are on fire cooking. I think that, that's correct as well, isn't it? I don't know. I've sort of lost track. <laughs> You've lost track of it all. <laughs> so that's Genevieve. And we're also talking to Chris Taylor. You probably heard another voice there. Uh, Chris is the founder and co-owner of uh, Charcoal and Wood Supplier Whittle and Flame, a.k.a. T-Bone Chops. Uh, and you're the co-author of uh, Fire Feast. Uh, is, that, is it just the one book you've done, Chris, or have you done more? No, I've done actually, well, I've sort of in amongst many, many books over my time, uh, but with me and uh, DJ Barbecue, Christian Stevenson, so um, I sort of do, we do most things as a partnership together these days, so uh, yeah, I've co-written, um, you've got Fire Food, uh, the burger book, which is all about ribs, no, you're joking, um, burgers, actually, uh, so, and then we've got um, Fire Feast, which is coming out in tandem with uh, Genevieve's uh, new book, Seared. So uh, they're both coming out quite similar times. Quite exciting, really. And they're both generally about cooking things on fire. We're basically taking over the world this summer. We're trying to. It does sound like it, and I love the Shakespearean tilt you gave to Seared. Uh, seared, yeah, then it was. Uh, we have to say it, it like Seared. 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 It, was, it, was, it was very classy. Um, Charred, charred. <laughs> before they introduce themselves, because this is what we do on on uh, on Flavor Talks. Before you introduce yourselves, I should I should explain. Are you back in front of the fire? Yeah. Back in front of the fire. And what have you cooked yourselves? Well, we've got some ribs here, baby back ribs that I've been basting with a kind of Korean gochugaru sauce. And then Chris is going to make me pudding, which is kind of rum and grapefruit caramel. Yeah. With, uh, with Mama Chops's brownies. Yeah, very exciting. Oh my God, what a Friday afternoon you're having. <laughs> well, I was just saying, before we started recording, I was just saying that I'm in the boardroom here at, at Bella Zoo I'm just, and I haven't had lunch yet. So I, by the end of it, I am, I'm going to be very, very hungry, I'm sure. Yeah. Unfortunately, we'll be full of ribs, so be yeah, right. Yeah, sorry about that. <laughs> um, oh, you're all right, yeah. Uh, right, listen, would you uh, would you please introduce yourselves to, to the listeners? Yeah, I'm Genevieve Taylor. I'm a live fire and barbecue cook, author of 12 cookbooks, and I run the Bristol Fire School. Hi, I'm uh, Chris Taylor, not Genevieve Taylor's brother <laughs> or sister. Or, or spouse. Or spouse, yeah. <laughs> Or no, father. We're not related in any, any <laughs> shape or form. I go by lots of silly names. Most of the time it's Chops. Christian calls me T-Bone. I don't know why. Well, I know why. So I put it on Instagram. Anyway, so uh, yeah, co-founder of Whittle and Flame Charcoal, the probably the world's most incredible charcoal supplier and sustainable charcoal supplier in the country and the world. Actually. And the it's whole ama- world. And the whole world. It's amazing. Yeah. I've been fire cooking for the last sort of 12 years. Um, worked fighting around in uh, food TV and just generally being quite smoky. I was going to say earlier on the whole Taylor thing, I, I would imagine it must be like interviewing Duran Duran in the beginning when there were so many Taylors and none of them were related. Yeah, although we generally think of it a bit more like Wham. <laughs> um, There's nothing yeah, wrong with a Wham. Andrew, I think Genevieve's probably George. I'm definitely George. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> George and Andrew. Uh, so we've been through what you're cooking. You're cooking ribs, and you're, you're you, uh, Chris. You'll be cooking a rum. What are you cooking now? A rum dessert, was uh, it? So, so my um, fantastic and glorious and most beautiful mother has made um, some. Uh, who goes by the name of Mama Chops quite often has Mama made Chops. some lovely brownies. <laughs> so 
Um, and I think two of them were for my children, yeah. but I've stolen them. So, and then we brought them here and then um, Genevieve wanted me to bring something to surprise her with. So I brought some Christmas crackers and a grapefruit. So we're going to, um, we've got some brown sugar butter. So we're just going to make a quick little caramel grapefruit sauce, pour them over the brownies for our dessert. Pretty exciting. That does sound nice. That does sound nice. Uh, listen, what do you think is behind the rise of live fire cooking? Is it, do you think, is it purely lockdown related or did lockdown sort of come along at the right time? Um, but I, think, I think lockdown has had a lot to do with it because pretty much it was the most exciting thing people could do for many months was get outside and barbecue and cook in their own back gardens. But to be fair, it's been growing and growing year upon year, hasn't it, I think? Yeah, I, I really... A big believer. So I work in, I do a lot of wild food cooking and I work for a school down in Sussex. And I think a big part of it is general reliance on technology that we all have these days and the want to escape from it. You know, things like the internet, social media, you know, we all spend a lot of our lives in a digital way these days. So yeah. naturally that will always require a, you know, an opposing effect to jump away from sitting on your thing and everyone just sits there going, oh, I actually want to be a bit of a caveman now. And, um, yeah, it's beautifully analogue, isn't it? Fire. Yeah, yeah. And it's, it's something that we can all do at home with very little equipment. There are trees everywhere. So all you need to do is find a piece of ground, light a fire, and you can cook on that fire. You don't even need a grill. You can just cook straight on the wood. And it's so accessible to anyone. And anyone can do it. Anyone can have a muck it up. They can make mistakes. But essentially, it's just making heat. And then you can cook on it and use that as a flavor. And it's so many different ways to explore it. And it's, uh, yeah, so, and it's a beautiful thing. Because what do you think we were all doing before we had TVs? Staring at fires. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, some of us still are. The British, we've not been... We've not been brilliant, have we, with barbecues? We do have a, particularly if you speak to any Australian or South African, we do have quite a reputation for not being very good with live fire cooking. Um, well, do I you, think it's uh, historically that was the case, but it's certainly becoming less and less like that. I, I think it's I quite say. quite a famous thing, but believe you me, I've been to plenty of different countries where people are awful cooking on fire. <laughs> Australia, they mostly use gas, don't they? That's yeah, I was going to say. So yeah. it's nice. Really? Cooking on fire, they cooking don't on do the it hob. properly. Yeah, yeah. I mean, well, they're just cooking on a hob outside, aren't they? But it's sunny, so why wouldn't you? Yeah. Well, exactly. Yeah, why wouldn't you? So I mean, I mean, I was going to ask. So I mean, what? There seems to be. I mean, from what I've seen, there seems to be an influence. I'm never quite sure whether it's from the USA or whether it's from uh, South, you know, South America, um, and also obviously with the pizza ovens, a, a bit of Italy. Where, where, where is sort of British um, live fire cooking? Where is it taking its influence from? Do you think? If you think about it, like humanity started with fire cooking, essentially. So there is not a single country on the planet that doesn't have a history of cooking with fire because that's how it all began. Yeah, I mean, we only changed that about 120 years yeah. ago. Like, it was, exactly. it's, it's a very, very new concept to cook on anything other than fire, really. Um, so, so we take our influence from all over the world. You know, I've travelled all over and ev everywhere I go, people are cooking on fire in different ways you know with lots yeah. of different spices and herbs and so i think i think the wonderful thing about british barbecue in inverted pommers is that we're culinary magpies in this country aren't we we, aren't we, we, yeah. we can we can cook what we like you know we're not constrained by just cooking american low and slow barbecue yeah because we get so much influence you know obviously you've got the south america yeah. you know huge influence from the sort of southern continent in america and then obviously you've got the american style but then a huge influence from sort of korean and asian southeast asian you know genevieve you know, you've got a lot of experience of cooking the Southeast Asian yeah. barbecue. Um, and it all comes into our little section here. You know, you go to the different fire restaurants. Every fire restaurant will have different dishes from different areas and bring in different flavours because mm. we've all cooked on fire. And you know what? There's a huge influence from here. So, you know, a lot of game cookery, a lot of wild cookery yeah. has always used fire because that just comes part and parcel with cooking on game. You know, you go to Hampton Court Palace and see the Elizabethan kitchens that they have there and everything was cooked on spits and then your wood-fired ovens you know and 
but they all work in slightly different ways. So it's just a big melting pot of everything, really, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean it is. I mean, I remember moving to London for the first time, which is which is over twenty years ago now. It's nineteen ninety nine, and I'm, I'm I moved to sort of uh, Green Lanes in Tottenham, and then that was all. Uh, that was all sort of Greek and, and uh, Crete uh, restaurants, which where they, they, they cook everything um, over over charcoal. But well, that was really unusual at the time. It was quite, you know, it was quite odd for me, sort of coming down from Manchester to see people cooking over over live fire. But there's been an awful lot more restaurants uh, these days, which, which where they they specialise in, in in live fire cooking. You know, I think that's because I guess restaurant cooking got quite sort of technological, didn't it? previously and I think a lot of the chefs are going back to live fire as a kind of new challenge you know it's a different way of cooking and um you know it's a it's a sort of extra set of challenge uh, you you think that was maybe a reaction to kind of gastronomic uh science yeah, that kind of sous vide and sort of super oh. high tech kind of quite boring cooking I think the cooking got a bit dull because it was all too easy and digital whereas you know fire cooking is is very kind of analog and primitive and you have to kind of be a bit more instinctive and and work with it because every fire is different isn't it yeah so it's not like you can just press a button and go yeah it's oh, going it to be done an immense amount of skill so I, I i was working on a little show called great british menu about um 12 years ago probably um just when a lot of sort of gastronomic cooking was really really big and coming in there were chefs in there who were just pulling out yeah. little white pots of different chemicals that the food industry has been using for decades and they're like oh look it does this it does this and in actual fact what they were doing was basically removing a lot of skill of cooking you know you to water bath something you get a piece of meat throw it in a bathtub and then it's been cooked like, there's no skill in that but it's not to say that things like that aren't useful the actual skill and creativity in working with fire is so much more fulfilling and incredible. It's more of a challenge, isn't oh, it? Oh, God, yeah. I think that's yeah. what professional chefs are probably seeking. Yeah, and I mean, I, I don't know if you remember, Jenny, we did meet a couple of years ago at Taste, and I think once you'd done your demo, I was, um, I was, I was boring you with the fact that I wanted to build a pizza oven, and I, I have actually done it. And I'm now, I am now discovering that it is, it, it's a completely different way of cooking, but we're going to come on to that, because I do want to talk to you about, about cooking, um, particularly in the oven, and this is not just for my own, uh, gratification um, but I mean do you think that the, um, you're, I'm, I'm asking you this question and you're both outside and it is it's probably not that far over zero where you are but do you think the British are prepared to cook outdoors in, in all weathers now whereas before if it wasn't you know if it wasn't a sunny bank holiday that the, the barbecue would never come out uh, I mean I think it's certainly changing in the right direction there's always going to be people who don't want to get off their sofa and who are happier to put something in the microwave and, and there's always going to be people who are happy to be a bit more adventurous and wrap up and get out there and get stuck in and I always sort of say that just because you cook it outside doesn't mean you have to eat outside you can <laughs> take it inside in yeah, the warm totally and I think but, you know it's all part and parcel I mean well I sell charcoal you know, so I have a very good barometer on how many people are cooking outside. And I will tell you, a lot less people cook outside in December than they do in June. Yeah, um, sure. You know, and that, that's just, it is what it is. It's all about making, it's all about making life as easy for you. Um, that's how to get people to cook on fire. If it takes you half an hour just to pull out your barbecue out of your shed, yeah. maybe you haven't even got any charcoal, all this, you know, why would you do that instead of turning on your hob? You know, yeah. and you're really passionate. The you know, biggest tip to anyone who say, you know, they want to cook up more, make it easy. Put your grill next to your back door. Make sure you've got some charcoal in a box near it, you know, and just have it. As Genevieve said, you know, you can you can make yourself some kebabs. You don't even need to finish them inside. You could just get a nice little sear, a bit of flavour, sear yeah. You get a nice bit of flavour on there and then bring it inside and then you can finish in the oven. You know, you don't have to do that. Or with a, uh, like a pulled pork butt. Yeah. You can smoke it outside yeah. for sort of six hours and then put it in your low oven. But then it depends on what costs the most because obviously electricity and charcoal are probably about the same price right now. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I think you'll find electricity is a lot more expensive. about making life easy for yourself. There's yeah. no rules. There's no... You don't have to do anything in any way. You do whatever you want. 
make it easy for yourself and just have a nice little time. I wasn't able to do it this year, but I, I, one of the things I did want to do with the oven was to was to do part of the Christmas dinner in the oven. Yeah. Every year without yeah. fail. Do you really? What, 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 what's, what's your favourite thing to cook in the in the oven, or do you, do you just do you change it every year? What what you cook outside? Turkey. Yeah. Turkey in the oven or um, on a barbecue. So I did a whole. Um, I do the whole Christmas dinner outside because I've got lots of toys here in the garden. <laughs> um, and you can do anything: Yorkshire puddings, uh, roast potatoes. You, you know, do a Christmas pudding. Christmas pudding. Of course, you can do a Christmas. Pudding. Oh, smoked Christmas pudding. In a smoker. Yeah. Wow. Why not? There you are. I'd say that I'm just being funny because I love doing that as well. I mean, but, the know. thing is, the heat, the fire is just. The heat source and the skill to fire cooking is learning uh, a little bit about the physics of fire and, and, and how it works. And, then, and, and from that knowledge, you can then work out where to put your food in relation to the fire. And then once you know that, you can cook absolutely anything over fire. You know, we do pavlovas, um, you know, anything. It's just about learning about the heat. Just a heat source, isn't it? Yes, just a heat source. <laughs> what's, that? What's, what's that we can hear? Uh, so that's a uh, grapefruit caramel sauce. So we're just going to make oh. a quick caramel with some brown sugar and some butter. Um, rum, rum. We got the rum. We got the rum. Let me get the rum. We got Christmas. Honestly, in. I I think by the end of this, I'm just going to be either crying or whimpering. Uh, just just. <laughs> So desperate for something to eat. So listen, we, you've, I'm going to come back. There's a couple of questions I want to come back to, but you've, you've jumped over to one because I, I think if I've read your book correctly, because uh, it, it did help me enormously through um, getting started with the oven. So the, the, the fact that you can cook different things at different stages uh, in the oven or on so fire. In a wood-fired oven, you just need to think about your oven as um, the fire in the oven is just you're, you're charging a great big battery essentially with a wood fired oven. So all the surfaces, the walls, the floor, the roof, all of those surfaces of your oven are a, a, an energy battery. Mm. Uh, so you start with a, a hot fire and a hot oven and then gradually as you put different things in you suck out the energy and you cool that fire down so it's about knowing where on the kind of where on the heat curve you're supposed to pop in different bits and bobs you know yeah and i think i i i think it's just one thing that people are quite scared of generally i, I mean when particularly with cooking it's, it's a theme i always return to it's just that I think uh, people are scared of making mistakes, and uh, and, and sure enough, uh, the first time I tried to make um, a baked bean recipe, uh, I woke up in the morning really excited, expecting beans and, and and fresh baked bread for breakfast, and I had the fresh baked bread and charcoal. It was it just it didn't go well at all. So it's it's about I think people are quite scared of making those mistakes, and and I guess on a on a on a live fire, there's a lot of opportunity. You have to make mistakes. You do. Um, so, Chris, what um, what products do you make at, at um, Whittle and Flame? Um, I will tell you after a brief interlude of when I open a bottle of rum and pour it into our stores. Ready? <laughs> we just go hear this. Here we go. Here we go. Pop. Oh. <laughs> it's not that champagne. Way. It's just. Kind of the, right. We'll pour it into the stuff. It might make some noise. Into. Ready? 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 That's a fantastic noise. So now we're just going to let the um, caramel and the butter in there and the rum, so it's all just going to dissolve itself and turn itself into a nice little sauce. And then we'll squeeze some grapefruit into it. Quite exciting. But we might as well put the grapefruit over the fire as well, actually. Get a bit of char on them. <laughs> We've got the pirates back. Oh, should we, um, before we answer that question as well, we just got to uh, Christmas crackers. Who's going to win this? Are we doing it at the same time, really? Damn it! I lost both. Ah! You're kidding. Damn it. Is that one gone? Yeah. Right. Surely, Genevieve, give him a hat. Don't be horrible. You're gonna. He's gotta have a. We're taking some pictures for you. Ooh. Oh, brilliant! <laughs> I've got a sticker. It says, "Is it too late to be good?" Yeah. Don't be good. Yeah. So, what, what, so what, what? What do you make at Whittle and Flame? Just explain to everyone, because I know very well what you what you make. Oh, I will tell you what we make. It's quite exciting. So, what we essentially do is. Um, we sequest carbon in the most um, beautiful and efficient way you can in the country to provide lovely charcoal products. So we all think we might be a bit of a charcoal company, but we also make plenty of other products. Um, but the whole idea is basically a big science experiment where we, in the most sustainable way possible, on our estate, 
we have 1700 acres of ancient woodland and so we sustainably harvest those woods um, with a sort of forestry commission management planned way that, way that we uh, to actually take the wood and um, we've actually created a system that incredibly efficiently um, breaks a piece of wood down into sort of five component parts so we get carbon which is charcoal we get heat we get wood vinegar we get wood tar we get um, permanent gases that we can burn and create energy so that whole process um, with in mind was to create some of the most beautiful charcoal in the world and every bag of charcoal we make from a single species of wood so from the forest we get in ash trees oak trees cherry sycamore hazel chestnut like any kind of british deciduous woodland we'll get the wood from and so we're actually a batch of uh, those trees so we'll take about uh, 400 kilos of the split logs and then we'll dry them in our dryer that actually uses waste heat from the kiln running so that's like all the heat from actually making the charcoal we use that to dry the next batch and then we um then we take the uh sort of char uh, the wood once it's dry we put it into our kilns we distill it like an alcohol so effectively we're making sort of like gin but with wood wood gin <laughs> Yeah. So uh, so we um, we heat up that wood till it breaks into its different parts. And the reason we do that is we actually retain all of the flavour and the energy within the charcoal. So every bag of charcoal, I say it's the best quality charcoal in the country with confidence because it is. Because we know that every single piece of charcoal in that bag is made at exactly the same temperature. A bit like sous vide meat. And that retains a lot of the lignin, the flavour. So when you actually cook on the charcoal... You can cook on it as soon as it's hot, and then you get all that amazing flavour from the lignin in the wood. And every batch of charcoal is fully traceable. So, the bag of charcoal. What have we got in front of us? So we've got probably ash because that's uh, my oh, favourite. Oh, and we got lime. We got batch number one thousand two hundred and three yeah. lime charcoal. <laughs> and I will be able to tell you not right now unless I go into the database, but I could tell you like when where, it was made. Where, well, I tell you the quarter of acre of woodland yeah. that that the trees were actually cut down and they'll regrow keep in mind we're not killing trees here but don't do that in our game um so we i'll tell you exactly where the trees came from when they were turned into charcoal exactly how long they got they took to take uh, turn into charcoal the amount of energy required to actually make that um so it's fully fully traceable and that is so important because yeah. having traceability we all wonder about it with our meat with our beef with our chicken is it traceable is it from a good place we don't worry about with our charcoal we buy in 99 percent of our charcoal in the uk is imported from god knows where made tropical, from tropical yeah, hardwoods made mostly. from who yeah. knows what yeah. yeah no one's going to tell you these things so you know and so that is essentially what we do is we just make beautiful charcoal to the best possible quality we can and we treat it like an ingredient we treat our charcoal like you would a piece of beef you know, the highest qu possible quality, knowing that everything that's gone into um, that bag of charcoal. Because effectively, we're just using the sun's power. You know, we're using they're just natural solar panels. That's all they are. And we're reaping the rewards and actually sequestering carbon as we do it, which is a beautiful little thing. So as well as um, lovely charcoal, it's quite, I mean, that's the short version. Uh, so, so as well as uh, lovely charcoal, yes, we make the only um, sort of 100% wood briquette in the country. We make our little pure char whittle bricks. So there's not another company in the UK um, that will actually make these. Um, the reason why they're so good is they're 100% pure wood and they have the same grown in britain standard that our charcoal does so that means the wood has all come from sustainably managed woodlands which is so important and that means there's no rubbish in our briquettes because what's in the briquettes that you buy from other companies that import them do you know uh, I, I, no i do you know what i've I genuinely got no idea nope does it say on the box nope if you phone them up and ask them would they be able to tell you nope um and that's just it you know because we all legally every single piece of food stuff that goes into our bodies has to tell you what ingredients are inside it yet we don't worry about that with charcoal so it's so important to um, know what goes on your food because when you burn charcoal though the gases released by that charcoal burning will be layering you know be enveloping your food and you will be eating those gases and particulates so if you want to you know eat food that isn't full of horrible chemicals 
it's good to know what's in it. So, you know, that's a big mission for us as well, is to actually create a briquette that is kind to the environment because so many are full of cornstarch, potato starch. And worse. Lime. Yeah, I mean, that's not including the hazardous chemicals that they use in them, and they don't have to declare them. That's unbelievable. You're talking to a man who several years ago, uh, on his birthday, his friend, uh, I'm from Halifax, and my friend in Halifax said, oh, come round, I'll, I'll do you a barbecue. Unbeknownst to me, he was throwing bits of old fence onto the barbecue and, uh, and, and cooking it. The next day, I was in A&E with some kind of poisoning. I do not know what. Um, I was really quite ill. It's just just awful. But listen, you're not getting away that easy because this, this subject is absolutely fascinating. So you said, uh, is it 1,400 acres you, you manage? Is that right? 1,700 acres. We don't manage. They're managed by um, the estate under a Forestry Commission management plan. And so, so which estate is that? that? That's Cornbury, uh, is it? Cornby Park Estate, yeah. Uh, it's the largest privately owned ancient woodland in the country, which doesn't mean we're cutting down ancient trees because a lot of people go, we can't cut down ancient trees. Woodlands like, need managing. Yeah. An yeah. ancient tree would be quite old. Yeah. But an ancient woodland, all that means is it's been a woodland since the last ice age. Quite exciting. Um, so this, but this, is, this is coppicing. Is this coppicing? Yes. You, so the method, yeah. there are a few methods to use, but the most um, widely used one is coppicing. So essentially, you have your woodland, and then you'll section it up into different sections, different coppit, different cops, copses, something like that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> corpses, different thing. Um, so yeah, it's different sections, and then you have it on rotation. You might separate them by one year each time. So yeah. Then every year you have a harvest, and then so you'll have. You'll have, right, so you've got an established coppice woodland, a managed woodland. So what happens? So you, you've got these lovely straight trees that have just grown. All very nice, but you don't quite know why. We'll get to that in a second. So you need to cut your wood down. So you go in there and you cut down your section of woodland. There'll be um, your trees, that your woodland, that you, your timber that you're going to be using. And then you'll have mm -hmm. standards as well, which are like really tall old trees. So what will happen is you'll go in there with your chainsaws and you'll cut down or basically give a haircut to all your trees that you want to use as timber so you haven't yep. killed those trees you know fair portion of those trees are still alive underground in the form of stump and obscene amounts of roots all connected by fungus very exciting um so once you've taken those trees down then you take those lovely straight bits of timber you process them and you make beams for your house or into charcoal or a lot of the time we just put into biomass great fun um and so you've got these uh so now you've got this woodland so you've it all looks like lots of little stumps um but then this amazing thing happens because what have you let in now light yeah or you've let in sunlight so it's a lovely lovely thing so now you sit there probably with your t-shirt off staring up at the sky with your hands up feeling around going, ah! so because now what's going to happen is that beautiful energy that sunlight's going to come into the forest floor and then it's going to germinate all those wildflower seeds and all the bulbs are going to start growing and then so all this biodiversity will come into the woodland like butterflies loads of little insects wild birds will come in unfortunately deer will come in as well and start eating everything because they do that um so now you've suddenly got all this lovely biodiversity and the whole like this section of woodland is buzzing it's really exciting and all the stumps of the trees that we cut down earlier now what are they going to do they're going to start growing and they grow fast because they've got a lot of energy in them and they go right we need to get up to that sun but then the other stump next to it's going to go we need to get there as well so then suddenly all the um trees are going to start shooting up what you call sun seekers little saplings but they're amazing because they're straight as an arrow and they'll grow up as fast as possible because they need to get to the sun now you've got these standard trees you probably have like oak standard trees about 100 years old now mm. they will force all these small little trees to grow really fast because everyone wants to get to the sunlight first and this is how you get straight timber and so it's incredibly fast way of growing trees now you might have a depending on the size of tree you want you might have five year rotation 15 50 year depending on what you need it's generally about 15 to 50 um years but it also depends on the trees that you're growing you know you go to kent you look at the sweet chestnut coppices they have there the whole place is just full of these incredible straight as an arrow um trees growing up and They'll all grow without sprouting a branch, um, depending on how high it might be, 50 foot, 30 foot, depending on where you are in the country and the climate. And that is the coppice woodland in a nutshell. And then, so you 
each year you'll take down a different section of the woodland and so the trees will be growing at different different levels each year and it just creates a really vibrant tree. Now remember, uh, Woodland, now remember, as these trees are growing really fast, you're actually going to be sequestering a huge amount of carbon because they're just sucking in as much oxygen, uh, carbon dioxide, and using all the sunlight they can to just really grow fast and fast and fast. And this is so good for the environment because, especially well, for sequestering carbon, if nothing else. Because remember, uh, stagnant woodland. So if we imagine a woodland that's just been sat there and untouched, unmanaged. So you'll have trees that are just dying because trees have a certain lifespan. And as they die, they will uh, suddenly start rotting. And as they rot, they'll start releasing methane, which is 17 times more powerful greenhouse gas than carbon dioxide. So, you know, that is actually not very good for climate change. So it's much better to have a growing, hard, fast woodland. Because a lot of people say, how can you cut down trees in this country? We're like, well, we're not. We're actually helping trees. And, you know, the oldest trees in the country are coppice trees because they never die. Because as long as you keep giving them a haircut every so often, you know, every few years, they'll just keep going. They'll never stop. Um, so they don't reach the end of their useful life. They just keep going and it brings value into our woodlands. And that's what yeah, essentially we're talking about. Because if a woodland has value, what do we not do? Turn into houses or farmland or something else. Because we can all sit there and go, oh, everyone wants to be lovely to the environment and do a nice, nice thing, but no one will if it doesn't pay. Well, absolutely. That, I mean, the fantastic explanation. I, I, that is regenerative management at its most basic and arguably its oldest. Is that, yeah? Oh, oh, definitely. We've been doing that for thousands and thousands and thousands of years. You know, yeah. it's, it's a beautiful way of simply managing woodland. And, you know, we do it because it's great. And the thing is, with you know, through history and time, we worked out these ways of doing things, yeah. you know, way before we were able to, throughout the world, without talking to each other, because it's the best way of doing it. And we worked out, we get the best timber, and it's, we've always had to maintain our environment, our woodland and our habitats, because if we didn't, we wouldn't get trees to make houses out of anymore. So as much as anything, it's purely selfish way of doing it, because we need to maintain our environment to live in. Um, whereas nowadays we don't worry about it so much because we can, you know. So you, I mean, you've got uh, 1,700 acres of of, uh, of woodland to go out there. Do you, I mean, generally, is British woodland being wasted? Is it not being managed? Is it just left to to grow and? Uh... Um, well, unfortunately, well, it's there's a lot more in the press about it now, but essentially, it still is being used for other things because you know there's a housing crisis. People need houses, and you know if there's a bit of woodland, you know, as far as we're told, we need anyway. We need um to shave off 45 minutes to get up to you know manchester or whatever it is for our old hsd um but you know unfortunately if there's a if society has a bigger value on woodland being something else it will go mm. that way we could all sit there and go oh no we should keep all the woodland but unfortunately we're in a society that requires you know housing and infrastructure and that will always win versus us wanting to keep a bit of woodland you know we will always put national parks aside and things like that but yeah um, it, it's always going to be to some extent a losing battle because as long as there is a higher value for willing to be something else other than you know a woodland. beautiful yeah woodland yeah, yeah. it will always lose that battle because you know but it's so important that we keep our woodlands because they're, they're quite literally the lungs yeah, of the country you know? exactly they, they keep the air healthy we just we just hope you know like it's getting a lot better, isn't it? You know, people are opening up to the idea, you know, the new DEFRA, you know, the way that's working, you know, it's not how much land you have, it's what you do with it. Mm. That is inevitably inevitably going to really help. But unless, like Chop said, unless a woodland is making somebody a, a living, that woodland is likely yeah. to get sold off to be turned exactly. into and kind of an industrial estate or a field of homes or, you know, it's, it's pure and simple economics. If a woodland exactly. is not paying somebody, it's not going to stay there. Yeah, and that's what sure. we're doing at Whittle and Flame as well, is this the science project is to develop a system that is small enough and doesn't produce any smoke. Because you remember, charcoal making is one of the worst things that we've done to the environment is one of the largest contributors to climate change throughout the world because two-thirds of the world still cook on charcoal. Doing it in a sustainable way that doesn't fill the atmosphere with particulates and, well, smoke, you know, is a beautiful thing and our system doesn't make any smoke. The way you've described it, it sounds to me like if they were all managed properly, British Woodland could replace all of our 
imported charcoal requirements? No. No? Oh. <laughs> we don't have enough woodland. We, do, we, still, we, don't, we, we just do not have enough woodland. 99, well, it used to be 98, I think it's 99% now, of all charcoal used in this country is um, imported. So the amount of woodland that we have uh, in this country that we could use for charcoal making, I still, I think me and Matt worked it out, will still not meet our insatiable demand that is ever growing every day nothing wrong with importing charcoal if it's been done in a lovely lovely way and most it, of it hasn't yeah no but the, 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 the thing is like we sit there and say imported charcoal is a terrible terrible thing but if we've utilized as much of our woodland that we have in our country you know say we got to that point where okay yeah. use all the woodland in the uk yeah. that is available to make because you know we can't say all woodlands available to make charcoal you know, if they're making lovely sweet chestnut coppice in Kent, maybe they want it for timber. So, you know, but if we've used all the woodland that we can sustainably use to make charcoal in the country, I don't believe we would have enough to fulfill our charcoal demands, in which case it's okay to look further. And, you know, if we're talking just over the, uh, the little river, the English Channel, that little place, you know, if they're sustainably making charcoal yeah. there in the similar method that we do here, yeah. and they do it in a good way, then it's the next best thing. Right. I wouldn't say all imported charcoal is, there is bad. You know, there are definitely some decent companies in the in Europe that are sustainably making it, but very few. Without a doubt, the vast majority of charcoal buy comes from the tropics in this country. Is there anything yeah. we can do to stop yeah. that happening? Uh, is, is positive. Yeah, it's, it's, it's generally not necessarily the fact it's imported, just the fact it's... Like terrible, it. terrible, terrible charcoal made yeah. by poor people out of beautiful rainforests. Yeah. God. No, I, I mean, I honestly, genuinely, I find this subject fascinating. I, it's, uh, you're going you're gonna to think I'm a bit weird, but I, I honestly, for years and years and years, I've, I've actually wanted to make charcoal. I've actually wanted to see how it was made. But the thing I don't understand uh, on your website, and, and you've mentioned it before, what is the difference between what you do, distillation of charcoal, and the way that other charcoals are made? So um, control is a huge difference. So almost every other process uses fire to um, provide the initial heat to make that charcoal, to heat up the wood, to break it into different things to make the charcoal. As we were talking about earlier, and the reason we do love cooking on fire so much is the... Um, idea that it requires skill it changes all the time and you know there's a certain amount of you know excitement in the fact it might you know wood diff wood's different each time and things like that the way we make charcoal because it's a computer controlled process um every single piece of charcoal is made at the same temperature that is so important because that dramatically affects the amount of energy per kilo that you have in that charcoal and also um, affects the density of the charcoal. So that's the amount of energy per square meter of charcoal. Mm -hmm. And it massively affects the flavor profile you get from the charcoal and the burn rate characteristics. So there's a lot to think about there. But essentially, if you buy a bag of charcoal that's made from a fire heated process, then you have bits of charcoal that will burn hot bits of charcoal mm -hmm. that will burn a bit cooler and a bit longer, bits of charcoal that will take a long time to get going, bits of charcoal that won't so much. And as much as that is developed from our kiln, also the fact it's done in single species. We absolutely are not the only company in the country that do single species charcoal, but you know the other companies along with us. Uh, and having that single species means each, every lump of charcoal in that bag will burn the same because you'll get hot spots with different charcoals in there so having the control will uh, that we provide you know i'm not going to tell you the exact temperature but it's somewhere between five <laughs> degrees and a thousand degrees so um <laughs> so you know that will provide that beautifully consistent product which is what the um, restaurants really enjoy from us because every bag of charcoal they know will burn that same way and also the way our process works because we have that control we're able to make our briquettes which are the sort of pinnacle shaped hexagonal briquettes that generally in the UK they're imported from Indonesia and full mm -hmm. of god knows what um, that's why you get fun like blue and green flames out of them um, 
But our ones, you know, the way our process works is we're able to actually make them because they're quite tricky little buggers to make and they will set themselves on fire when you, um, after you've taken them out of the kiln and they've cooled down and they're just fun like that. Um, so <laughs> you do need to, you know, our process, having that control is so important. And the, the second most important part of the process is how ecologically sound it is, you know, not producing smoke. You know, we condense all the particulates that our kiln produces and we make uh, 600 litres a day of pyrolytic acid, which is otherwise known as um, wood vinegar, an amazing um, soil improver, an organic um, spray that we can actually use on farmland. So we're, we're in lots of field trials right now, and we're creating this market for this incredible product. And wood vinegar is something that we've all used because every time that we have a we burn our stubble or we burn our um or we have a forest fire you know like a lot of different countries they'll burn their in a managed way they'll burn through their woodlands um and then suddenly it's really fertile afterwards why is that fertile well because the chemicals produced from when you actually break the wood down in a forest fire contains three plant growth hormones plenty of other chemicals in there as well which the plants really love and so a lot of seeds require these chemicals to actually germinate so it's all natural it's all organic effectively we've had a forest fire in our kiln and then we're going to yeah. spray the um the lovely vinegar juices all over farmland and it's different concentrations it could be a fungicide it can be a herbicide you know if you get the concentrations right it will dramatically promote the growth of microbial um, organisms so you'll get huge amounts more um fungus growing you know and all the roots will suddenly connect to each other and you know, all the plants will start growing you know it's a lot lovelier than the idea of having our little drug addict wheat grains that are you know that we sow onto our fields that we have to basically completely and utterly destroy every single living organism on those fields just in case they might kill our little grains um before we spray them with obscene amounts of um fertilizers all sold by the same similar companies you know it's um and is there a is, it, is there a flavor difference when you're cooking with different uh, sort of you know varietals of charcoal is there a flavor difference or is it just about the way that it burns in this, i always i talk to people i explain it it's a bit like different bottles of malbec um you know like flavor wise different charcoals will have different flavors but very very subtly mm. and generally your thing you're cooking with the charcoal will flavor um the profile a lot more yeah. like you know there, there are differences to flavors you know we especially in the yard you know we're around it all the time we will we'll smell different flavors from the different woods you know yeah. you know oak will have a different flavor to ash and things like that but the biggest difference by far is the burning profile yeah. the characteristics and how it burns straight away you're bringing into density there um energy per square meter mm. and energy per kilo and that will always be the biggest difference with charcoal with wood you've retained a lot more of the lignin in the you know all the lignin is still in the wood and so you're going to have a lot different flavor profile there mm. our process we try to retain as much of the lignin as possible while still making a, a clean burning charcoal because obviously if we retained all the lignin it would be really dirty still so we don't want that you know so we'll retain a fair bit of the flavor but you know a great way of seeing the difference is mm. if we use our briquettes our pure char whittle bricks and then use some ash charcoal or use the briquettes and then use some cherry charcoal. That's a really good way to get the difference because you'll have a really neutral, clean burn. And then if you put some flavour on with some of the actual lump wood, then you'll really notice that difference. But it's quite hard, especially if you never really used it before, to really see the difference without putting them next to each other. Um, so it is a subtle thing, you know. Yeah. There is a difference, so we do talk about it. But honestly, and I think, it, but you know, just to interject, by the time. You know, it depends on the type of food you're cooking. You know, if you're layering up your food with different rubs and spices and herbs and maybe making a beautiful dressing or, you know, using some lovely Bella Zoo Rose Harissa, for example, you know, by the time, you, by the time you've got all the different layers of flavours, yeah. any difference from the charcoal, it is, like Chop says, it's pretty subtle. So it's just, it's just, you know, you need to consider the whole dish as a kind of layer of yeah. different things. And I think you? I think if you really want to see the different flavour profiles of different woods, different charcoals, yeah. you want to you'll be using nothing other than salt, you yeah. know, on your food. Yeah. You know, if you're sprinkling it with a load of, you know, ground cumin, coriander, mm -hmm. you are definitely putting in a punchy, punchy flavour. Yeah. Which um 
will layer up and mask other flavors in there. So um, it's, you know, it's really important to understand, you know, you're building a dish. Yeah. And like whenever myself or Genevieve put any dish together in any yeah. of our books, we look at the balance. We might have a smoky puree or a, or a smoky vegetable. Then we might not have so much of a smoky meat or something to go with that. Or, you know, we might have a really smoky sauce, but then we have a really sweet meat or, you know, you need to balance a dish. Yeah. And, yeah. Um, you know, so often I, I like to bring smokiness from accompaniments, not necessarily the, um, the meat or the sort of the main veg in a dish, because that's quite unexpected thing for someone who's eating it so they might have a not very smoky bit of pork loin or something but then a really smoky sauce that comes through it and they go oh that's that's surprising and that's always a nice thing if you get someone to go oh that's quite exciting i mean i've, I've actually got I've, I've got a copy of chard sat right in front of me which is your um, your complete guide to vegetarian grilling and, and, yeah. and barbecue uh, which so i so uh, genevieve i i said to so uh, we've got two development chefs there's henry who's um who you've met who's gone off on a three-month sabbatical around spain lucky old him um but there's there's danny as well when i said to danny um that I, that I was doing a podcast with you she was like oh my god that's fantastic i love genevieve and then she thrust this book into my hand said this has just arrived they had they found a budget um but you've got a you've got a new book coming out companion to this i would imagine given that it's the, the chard was about vegetarian grilling and this is all about meat isn't it seared it is it's all about meat but it's like um you know it's like the science of cooking good meat so it's about it's about good meat over good fire so there's a real sustainability angle both from their fuel which is super super important to me and, and an ingredient and it, as an ingredient and, all, and, and also the meat itself you know that we that we all we all really need to be eating less meat but better meat and that yeah. that's the future and, and thinking really carefully about where we get our meat and um and you know lockdown has been another amazing thing for all these small independent farmers and butchers because people now are really confident and au fait with buying their meat online so mm. You know, it's never been easier to say, I don't want to pick up a vac-packed pack of chicken breasts when I go to my supermarket. I'm going to get some really good ingredients online. And, and it's the most sustainable way of buying, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. You know, yeah. we, we get that all the time with charcoal. We go, oh, I only live 20 miles away. Why don't I drive to you? And like, That's not really a point, <laughs> is it? I mean, <laughs> do you think the carbon footprint of going through mass delivery systems is minuscule compared to driving to the shops it, it, it's a it's a really good point do you think i mean do you think that's going to last because I, I i i know there was um within a couple of weeks of lockdown happening um yeah. obviously there was there was a bit of panic because none of us knew how we were going to shop and what was going to close and what wasn't going to close and you know we saw it here with our uh, web shop which which yeah. which just i think in the end it quadrupled its um turnover which wasn't huge in the first place but it's a lot bigger now but do you think that um that usage that is going to tail off or do you think it's going to last and people are much more discerning and as you've kind of already alluded to that they do now recognize that they can get really good stuff over the internet yeah i mean hopefully it will i mean the thing is i think the more people like like me shout about the value of um of buying kind of better meats and eating it less often you know that, that, that it can only help can't it and um you'd hope yeah hopefully 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 definitely that, that's what seared is all about and you've de and you've definitely got to have a shower after cooking i think it's one it's one of those I, you, you, uh, I, do you know what i really like going to bed smelling of wood smoke because it makes me think <laughs> yeah. i've had a really happy day yeah, yeah. yeah. i like that my wife yeah. doesn't but i like that right. um. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> can you give us one or two ingredients that are surprisingly delicious when cooked on live fire that you might not that people not, might not immediately think would be something you'd cook with live fire. Well, 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 chops is I can quite quite categorically confirm chops is great for 
um, rum caramel sauce was very nice because I just ate some on a brownie. That was nice. It's good. It had a fair bit of bitterness. It yeah, was nice. It yeah, was quite, nice bit of bitter. Yeah. I mean, I think um, I, I would say I don't think there's an ingredient in the world that isn't made better by cooking it. What's surprising there? though? What's surprising? Come on. Uh, <laughs> uh, like, like parsnips. Maybe parsnips. The smoked parsnips are the absolute bomb. That's good. That's surprising. I like really that. good. Oh. Yeah. I'm gonna say. Brassicas. Yeah, green stuff. Green stuff. Yeah. A lot of people won't put that over. Like any kind of cabbage, any kind of brassica leaf. Give it a bit of fire. Give it a bit of broccoli. A bit of a bit of char. But anything you cook inside, you know, like a great tip as well. I always say to people, is you don't have to cook the whole dish outside. Yeah. Maybe you just want to smoke your aubergines for your baba ganoush that you're going to put with your. You know, just you know, if it's raining and it's cold, but you could just maybe just get your peppers, yeah. fry them over. The, you know, yeah. add in a bit of flavour there. You know, with a plate of food, everything doesn't need to be cooked over fire. Often it can be, and it will be, especially in me and Jen's houses. But don't feel the pressure that you go, oh, I've got to cook everything outside. You know, for a Christmas dinner, I don't have the luxury of seventy-five different grills that uh, Genevieve has. I mean, <laughs> Jesus, I can't even count them. Uh, I only just got a ceramic. I only just got a ceramic grill um, a month ago. Up up until a few uh, couple of months ago, my grill was generally a bit of expanded steel on a on a couple of bricks on the ground, just because. Don't really need more than that, um, <laughs> but no, but, it's, but like you just don't feel the need that you have to do everything inside. You know, you can start a dish off, finish it in the oven. You know, go your yep. own way and go exactly go your own way, but don't feel you have to do all of it that way. It's um, listen, uh, that, that... make it easy. You know, make sure your grills near your back door. And the other thing, the other thing to yeah. make it easy, you like it. Be a little bit boy scout about it. If you're going to be cooking outside, get all your prep done inside and lined up. You know, get your get your bits ready so you don't have to keep coming in and it's out. It's good to get your kitchen. bits ready. It's always good to be prepared with your bits. Yeah, get, make have sure your bits are organised. Nice and tidy. Nice, oh, tidy bits. Oh, it's very, it's very, very important. <laughs> on that slightly smutty note, uh, <laughs> I think I, I'm going to thank you both. I mean, I, I, I do personally. I think I could have. I, I could have listen to you both for for quite a while longer but um thank you very much genevieve taylor and chris taylor and uh yeah um so thank you both very much and uh, i hope to see you over the summer at one of the many food festivals that's going yeah. on oh yeah i mean there's going to be plenty of them yeah it's going to be a busy busy old summer this year i think we've got a lot lined up um what's the first one we're doing uh, Taste know. of London. I'm at Taste of London. Oh, I might be there. Well, we will. We'll yeah. see you at Taste of London, definitely. Yeah. Wonderful. All right. Thank you very much. Cheers, Cheers guys. Thank you so much. Bye bye. <laughs> if you've enjoyed this podcast, please feel free to leave a rating and review. We'd really appreciate you taking the time to let us know what you think. You can follow us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, TikTok, and LinkedIn, or go to bellazoo.com. Thank you very much for listening, and hope you can join us next time. To find out more about Food FM and our content, go to foodfmradio.com.